is Ronaldo. Oh, my goodness. You don't save those. Out of this world. Messi. 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 Landon Donovan, there are things on here for the USA. Can they do it here? Cross, and Dempsey is denied again, and Donovan has scored! Oh, can you believe this? Go, go, USA! Certainly through! Oh, it's incredible! You could not write a script like this! For the fourth time, the United States of America are crowned champions of the world. From the international stage to right here at home, this is FUVFC, talking all things soccer on WFUV Sports. Welcome back, folks, to another week edition of FUVFC. I'm Keenan Troy. Big news for us and the podcasting community as we are coming to you live for the first time in FUVFC recent history, all three of us are in person. We're back in the WFUV studio. Still wearing masks. All that precautionary stuff is good, but it's good to be talking soccer face-to-face, more or less. And other big news, we're joined by first-time FUVFC oh, ho, ho. co-host, John Tyos. John, how you doing? Welcome to the show, brother. Glad to be here. You know, very excited to talk soccer with you guys today. Soccer is hot on the streets. If you're a U.S. men's national team fan, you know, you could take a sigh of relief today. Um, after that win against Costa Rica, 2-1 win, you know, now you're looking on to Mexico and, you know, you got to be happy with that last performance. Um, and going forward, you know, you got a couple tough, tough matchups, uh, coming up, but you know, you got to be, uh, excited about it. Certainly have to be excited moving forward. And we are joined once again by the man, the myth, the legend, Alex Wolves, the Wolverhampton supporter, Wolves, Wolves, you know him. How are you doing, Alex? I like that, the man, the myth, the legend. Very nice, Keenan. I, t- I feel very underdressed today, I have to be honest with you guys, because I got one guy back here wearing a Liverpool sweater, and I got another guy here wearing a USA shirt, and I'm here with a plain old black T-shirt. I was not uh, briefed about the occasion here, so Keenan, I, I feel a little uh, left out here. Got to stay on your to- toes, Alex. I have a Wolves jersey. You could have just told me, hey, <laughs> wear it, and I would have fit right in. We would have been in business, so hey. It's time to wear it, too. I mean, great win this past weekend. So, Yeah, I, I mean, we can touch on Wolves if you want later. Oh, still. The whole episode's got to be Wolves. <laughs> <laughs> but as John, as you mentioned, United States men's national team got a crucial result last Wednesday against Costa Rica, beating the Costa Ricans at home 2-1. to one. Last week, I know neither of you are on the show with me, but me and Dylan Balsamo, another FUVFC contributor, we are voicing our concerns going into this match just because – you know, following a shocking loss to Panama on the road, we were thinking that, you know, if you don't beat Costa Rica here, it's going to ask a ton of questions from the top to the bottom of what the United States men's national team soccer program is going to go do going forward. But seemingly none of that matters because they beat Costa Rica. Two to one, come from behind win. Serginho Des scores an absolute worldie in the first half, finally giving the United States a first half goal, something that's been so elusive all this World Cup qualification. And John, I want to start with you because you're you're Don in the red, the white, and the blue. I think that's the 2019 kit, maybe. Maybe it's the 2020. I don't know. They change it up every year. They can't be consistent <laughs> like some of the like some of the European teams, which really hurts the wallet. But John. Playing a crucial match against Costa Rica, you see the United States go down one to nil within quite literally the first minute of match play, and for them to rebound in the way and they do, and yes, it's scored as an own goal, but Tim Weah gets that crucial second goal, hitting the post off the goalkeeper and in. 
what what does this mean for the future of the United States men's national team? Is this a result in which they're happy with, that they're content with? Is 2-1 enough to still be relevant as becoming the best team in CONCACAF? Or is this just another result that highlights the inconsistencies that the United States men's national team is plagued with? Yeah, if you're a U.S. men's national team fan right now, you got to be happy sitting atop the table at number two. Um, and this was a great result for the United States. Uh, you know, to start off the game, it was a little reminiscent of that Nation League's final game uh, with Mexico scoring in the first minute. But uh, I kind of thought that that played to the United States' advantage. You know, Costa Rica sat back uh, the rest of the game, uh, you know, kind of parked the bus. And uh, as soon as uh, Death scored that goal, you know, uh, USA had all the momentum going on in the rest of the game. And they put the pressure on. And Des later, with the assist to Wea, which... You know, I don't consider that an own goal. I consider that way as goal, but, uh, you know, the rule books have something else to say. But, um, yeah, for USA, it's it's a huge win. And also something that's important to point out is the lineup selection for that game. Uh, you know, there's been there's been a lot of talk uh, about Greg Berhalter and the lineups that he's put out the last couple of weeks. But, you know, this lineup um, was one of the best that I've seen uh, in in the in recent history. And so, um, you know, he continued with the 4-4-3 uh, formation, which I think um, USA has had the most success with. And, you know, he's, he's kept uh, those main guys in there. You know, I really like the midfield with McKinney, Tyler Adams, and Moose in the midfield. I think that needs to continue um, as we move on to some of the tougher games. And um, also it's going to be very exciting to see where Pulisic and Gio Reyna fit um, moving on into these uh, – these other matchups. But yeah, if you're a U.S. men's national team fan, you have to be happy with the result. And, you know, moving on to Mexico, it's a very important game. But, uh, you know, USA has the momentum right now. Yeah, I think resiliency in a lot of ways is impressive about this team because, as you mentioned, that loss to Panama, not not a good sign. And you very easily could have taken that, gone in a very, very different direction. But this team, as you mentioned, the lineup, so interesting. Average age of 22, 22 years old, the youngest team they've ever fielded for an international competition. It's very interesting and to think that a group like that not only bounced back from a loss against Panama, but also bounced back, as you mentioned, Keenan, falling behind the very beginning of the game. I mean, to do that and pick up a win in a really big spot, I think is important, and you learn a lot about this team. Certainly, there are concerns. Those are not alleviated, and I think we've seen a lot of those with whether it's the lineup, whether it's just the inconsistencies that we've really hammered on this podcast every week. But there's something about this team to get wins when they need to in games like this that I think, Keenan, is, is really important in this game against Costa Rica, a big step forward for that. Yeah, and gentlemen, as you both touched on, we're kind of worried about Greg Berhalter in the sense that the starting 11 is never consistent. And, you know, John, you talked about that midfield trio of Adams, McKinney, and Musso going forward. I think that's the three you're going to want consistently. But there's a real head-scratcher in why Paul Areola was named mm. to the starting 11 before suffering a pregame injury. And no disrespect to Paul Areola. I think he does a really good job in, you know, being a good utility player off the bench. He can kind of get forward if you want to play him almost as a false nine, but he does an okay job in the midfield. But he picks up a pregame injury, and you see Musa introduced, and, you know, he thrives in a, in a you know, midfield trio that has an anchor in Tyler Adams, has a creator in Weston McKinney, and then Musa can kind of just explore which capacity he wants to play. But as I talked about the starting 11 last week and that real head-scratcher we saw in Panama – and then we see a rebound in the terms of the 11 selected are the 11 that you expect week in and week out if you want this program to be something great and have the potential to be something great. I'm just wondering now, do you think 
for me at least, I think that call for that 11 was something made by the United States Soccer Federation. Hmm. I think that we've seen in times past Burrowhalter, you know, kind of toying with who he wants to roll out there. We've seen Yossi Zarda start way too many matches for this national team. We saw Matt Turner start, who did a really good job, but then he goes back to his number one in Zach Steffen, which is a good sign, meaning that he has confidence in the goalkeeper that he wants to lead this nation going forward. But I'm just wondering now, is Burhalter out of the doghouse because he fields a competent 11 that, you know, seemingly every fan watching from their couch would field? And because he gets a good, you know, good result against Costa Rica? Or do you think, I, I mean, for me at least, I personally think that you face Mexico and Jamaica next in your uh, upcoming World Cup qualification schedule. I think this is really when we determine what Greg Burhalter is for this national team program. Or are we content with a good result against Costa Rica and we know they're going to play Mexico well and then whatever happens against Jamaica happens against Jamaica. But should we expect this kind of level, I'm not going to say competency because I feel like that's a dig on Burhalter, <laughs> but by and large just, you know, his ability to recognize the talent on the field and produce that talent? Or are we going to still sit back and watch, you know, who knows who starts against Jamaica or the next round El Salvador or later on Honduras? At what point do we kind of sit and say Greg Berhalter has finally figured his things out? Uh, you know, to answer that question, you know, it can't just be one game. And, you know, you got your most important game against Mexico coming up. And really with the lineup selection, what Greg Berhalter needs to do is – is start off with seven to nine players uh, that are consistent in the lineup every time. You want to have your core that are there playing every single game. And then you can mix, uh, mix and match with, with the substitutions and all of that. But you need to have 15 to 16 guys. You can't be rolling into games with 26 guys that you think can contribute on a consistent basis. That's just not going to work. And we've seen in the past that it hasn't worked. Uh, look, just looking at that Padma game. And so I think what we need is some consistency and we need to see it week in and week out. Um, we need to see players who are going to be in the team consistently. And so I think that's very important moving forward. But I don't think that this one game against Costa Rica, you know, proves anything to us. We need to see it uh, constantly and we need to see it moving into some of the tougher games. You know, I still think with this schedule, um, USA still has four of their toughest games. They play Mexico twice, home and away. They play Costa Rica away and they play Canada away. And so in those games, we're going to need to see a similar lineup there. And also something um, I talked about before, but seeing where Pulisic and Reyna fit in. Uh, um, you know, you saw the top three selections with Pepe, uh, Aronson, and Weah. Um, and you wonder where Pulisic is going to fit in. You know, you, you think it's going to be the left wing position, and you think Reyna's going to fit in on, on the right wing position. But you don't know it with Greg Bolt, uh, Berhalter. Um, you know, it could be anything. So um, it's something that uh, we should look out for in the future and something to be in excited about. Plus, it's somebody to watch out for, too, because I'm reading an ESPN story came out just briefly that he's really dealing with some serious setbacks in his injury, and that's why we haven't seen him for Chelsea, haven't seen him for the international team since September. And we'll see kind of what position he's in when he comes back, maybe for those those upcoming games against Mexico, as you mentioned, but it doesn't look likely with his, his situation. But I think, and I'm curious to get your guys' thoughts on this, the Panama game, was almost Burhalter saying, if I put out an inferior lineup, can we still win against an inferior opponent? Answer is obviously no. But I think that was him trying to honestly see if this team was good enough. I'm not giving him credit for it, but obviously just the test of where this team is really at. But I think what he learned with that game is that if I don't have the best 11 out there, we're not going to win. And I think that's something that's important for a reality check for this United States team. And I think he, and it's going to be interesting to see in his next set of games, he can't make those same mistakes because you need your best lineup against Mexico, against Jamaica, 
interesting to see what he's going to pull out there. But I think it was just him trying to see if he puts out, you know, a lesser of a lineup against Panama will work out. Obviously didn't. I don't think he's going to make that same mistake again. So is he out of the doghouse for now? I think so. I'm not big into really criticizing 11s, to be honest with you, because I think it's all contingent on the players. Obviously, there's objective decisions that you can make that are not appropriate in certain situations. But I think at the end of the day, it comes down to the players and there's no excuse, no matter who's on the field, to lose that game to Panama. So I don't think that same issue is going to come up again, though, with these last couple games of, of qualifying either, though. Yeah, but to your point, Alex, wondering about the 11, you know, perhaps playing an inferior 11 against what he might deem an inferior side. I think to that level, we really need to discuss, and maybe not today, but we'll look at it and reevaluate after the Mexico and the Jamaica game, you know, two really good sides there. If that's the case, if Burhalter's looking at Panama game away at Panama too, which makes the game significantly sure, harder, yeah, sure. what level of arrogance is still ingrained within the culture of United States men's national team soccer to the point where we can say, I don't need to play my best 11 to go up against a team in Panama who, all things considered, made it to the World Cup in place of the United States sure, in 2018. Yeah, sure. So it's not like, you know, you're playing Trinidad and we know what happened when you played Trinidad last, but it's still that same attitude of we can show up be subpar and get a result, which I think plagues this team because it takes away reps from key guys who you need moving forward in big matches, and it also ruins the culture of the team because week in and week out we see the United States play these games that are a lot closer than they need to be, seemingly because Burhalter can't get in the mindset that every game is must win if we want to make it back to the World Cup, and that's what's expected of him. So I know we talked a lot about, you know, Reyna introduced, Pulisic introduced, and it's seemingly this big question for the United States up front as to which top three, excuse me, front three they're going to roll with because you see Pepe playing really well, you see Arison playing really well, and Tim Way has always kind of been hyped up, in my opinion, to be a world-class striker or world-class winger for that matter. And I think he definitely has the quality, but when you see p- perhaps Reyna and Pulisic back, obviously it's assumed that one of those guys is going to have to sit out, if not two of those guys, so that you know your best players can get worked onto the field. But to your point, Alex, we don't know with Pulisic when he's going to be back and healthy, and we don't know what in what capacity Reyna is going to play for this team. We know how good he can be on the wing, but I I fully could see him playing center attacking mid for the United States moving forward. I don't know what Burhalter is going to do, but seemingly now it's should at least be in his mind narrowed down to, as John, you pointed out, 16, maybe 17, 18 at the most, guys that you can really count on to go out and get results. And what's going to be a tough CONCACAF qualifying schedule with the Mexico, the Jamaica, then playing Canada, and then, you know, you get pick up Mexico and Costa Rica later down the stretch. So it's definitely going to be interesting moving forward, but not to parallel the United States to a Titan that is Manchester United, but we see these same... <laughs> what a transition. I know, right? Smooth. But we see these... Same problems existing at the United club level where up front there's these big question marks of you've got all this talent, but you still seemingly can't get winning results. And so this past weekend we saw United domestically after the international break take on a Leicester side that has been struggling this year. We know the Leicester of old that won the cha- won the Premier League, that contended, that you know would be in top four chases. And this year they started off on a bit of a wrong foot and are still kind of clawing their way back into that mix. But we see United go out and play them and lose 4-2 to two and do so well to draw level with, with Leicester after Leicester takes the lead in the 78th minute, 81st minute, United levels it. And then seemingly right off the kickoff, there's no drive within that United side. And Alex, I know that you and I talked a couple episodes back about how good we think Manchester United mm-hmm. could be, what mm-hmm. their ceiling is, how Ole's going to manage that front three. But two goals against a Leicester team that has had questions in their defense, and then we parallel that with a 1-1 draw to Everton. I'll start with you, Alex. 
what what do we make of this Manchester United side that's currently sitting sixth behind a team like Brighton, behind <laughs> Spurs, who, as good as their talent may be, seemingly always run into hiccups? Where where does United go from here? Well, I think it's interesting that we should mention our shadow today, Michael Hernandez, who's here. And I was actually talking about him, talking to him about this yesterday, because United, I think, is in such an interesting crossroads right now. Because on one hand, Keenan, you know, I said last week, I think they will. John, I wonder what you think about this. I think they'll be the top of the table, end of the season. Bonkers take, and I'm aware of that. But the reason I say that is I think this is a real crazy time right now for this team to figure it all out. You're seeing bad results, obviously. I mean, you mentioned the two, uh, the loss to Leicester and then the draw to Everton, even an Aston Villa loss preceding that back at the end of September. It's not been good for a little while now. And as Michael was mentioning the other day when I was talking to him, these are against teams that you should beat, obviously. And I think the thing about the Premier League that I think is really interesting right now, to me, there are no teams you should just beat. I think there's a lot of good teams that, for example, an Everton or, or Leicester could upset you just as equally as a Liverpool or a City. And that's who Man United is about to face. So I think you're going to see in this next couple of weeks where Man United is really at. It's obviously early. It's a long season. They have a lot to learn about themselves. But, John, I think this next couple of weeks are going to tell us a lot if this team is real, if they could beat a lot of these superior opponents. Because I think sometimes Man United, with all that talent, we mentioned with the U.S. The national team, they could downplay a bit to their opponents. But I think they'll rise up to the challenge in the next couple of weeks, and we'll start to learn a little bit more about who this team can be as opposed to what they are right now. Yeah, this Manchester uh, United team, you know, it's a team that finished third in the Premier League last year, and they brought in arguably the best striker in the world and arguably the best center back in the world in mm. Varane. Uh, I know Varane's hurt right now, but, you know, this Manchester United team, um, it was looking very lackluster in that game against Leicester. Um, you know, if if David De Gea is not in the game, that's, I think, Leicester scoring eight or nine goals. David De Gea was the man of the match in a game where United lost four to two. Um also, something to look at is, you know, two of the four goals that were scored in that Leicester game um, were off set pieces. Yeah. And, and you know, coming up against Manchester City, they scored 10 goals in their last two games uh, against Club Brugge and, and Watford. And so it's going to be a real challenge, and it's going to be something to watch for in the Derby. Um, you know, Manchester City um, sitting in the top four right now, but... Uh, and Manchester United out of the top four in uh, the sixth position right now. But, yeah, just a lackluster performance. And even from Ronaldo, um, you know, he had that one chance on a Sancho cutback, which was a nice save by Schmeichel. But, you know, very lackluster. He looked like he wasn't even there at some times. And it looks like a team that isn't motivated and a team that just has no energy right now. And, you know, I believe that they could be one of the best teams in the Premier League and be in the top four and make the Champions League next year. But, um, you know, they have to do something different and they have to make some changes. And I think, too, with those changes you're talking about, John, I think it has to come from the top, at least in my personal opinion. Hmm. You saw that Thielman's goal to, you know, draw it level after an absolute magisterial strike by Mason Greenwood. Thielman's kind of hmm. says, whatever you can do, I can do, and just totally dinks De Gea, puts some whip on it to the far post. But what caused that chance was not, you know, a great a turnover in possession at all. It was literally Harry Maguire not moving to the ball. And I don't know who needs to hear this at Old Trafford. I'm sh- I don't know if this podcast will ever reach them. I don't even know. Oh, if it will. Even, don't worry. I don't even know if we'll reach England. No, it will. <laughs> but the point remains that Harry Maguire is not a captain of this side because he does not embody the the cult of personality that Manchester United has thrived upon for so long. He does. I mean, I don't want to run him through the mud because this going to be applied to anyone. But he, just looking at that, and John, you know, you brought up two goals on set pieces. 
Maguire looks lost out there consistently. And that's fine if that's going to be the level of play which he's going to compete at. But to the point is you don't see anyone on that field going over to Maguire and getting in his face the way that you'd expect maybe a Paul Scholes to do, a Gary Neville, a Rooney, one of those old you know United Sentinels that had really established this club or reestablished this club under Ferguson. We don't see that, and we certainly don't see it from Ole. You know, say what you will about Jose Mourinho and his time at Man U. When Pogba was not competing to the level Mourinho wanted him to, he would drag him in the press. And maybe that's being a poor manager, but at least it establishes some level at which you expect your, you know, multi-million dollar salaries to perform at on the field. And so that I think for that Leicester loss, it really encapsulates the way that Alex you touched upon. In the Premier League, sure you can play up or down to your opponents if you want, but that only leaves them more room to come and get you. That's correct. Yeah. Because Leicester we know that they're a quality side. They have still have that ins- a lot of those key pieces that they've had in years past where they've experienced success. And for, you know, as a fan to see that lack of energy, that lack of passion on the field for those United players, it leaves me scratching my head as to wondering what's going on in that dressing room. Because right now it's seemingly let's go out and play whatever style of soccer we want and, you know, rely on the Bruno, rely on Ronaldo to go out and, get us goals because we're not going to try and produce anything else. And when we want to produce, we'll play phenomenal soccer. But when we don't, it's just, okay, hopefully we can steal a couple goals and maybe get away with the point. And so we move into their bulk of the schedule. So they play Atalanta tomorrow in the Champions League, which isn't really easy on them. And then they play Liverpool on Sunday. And then the following week they play Tottenham, who's two of teams in the Premier League ahead of them. And then they play Atalanta again. And then they play City. And then they get a break with Watford. Then they play Villarreal, Chelsea, Arsenal, and then they get a break with Palace, and that's kind of the end of their run of run of tough competition. But the next month for them is, you know, Alex, you say you see this team maybe on top of the table, but the <laughs> st- the style of soccer they're playing right now, I'd be surprised if they beat Watford, maybe at Atlanta once, and the way they're playing right now, I could see this young Arsenal team go out and give them a run. So my question to both of you, take it whoever wants, is, what needs to change within that United locker room? Well, because- this, this is my question, Keith. Sorry to interrupt, but I have a question for you because I think the interesting thing we're talking about is that this team, we're speaking of them as if they're, when are they going to become a good team? But I think we have to remember, like John mentioned, they were a third-place team last year. Do you think they're a better team than they were last year? No. I think last. I think they're about on par as to what they were last year. But I think they're underperforming considering what they what they signed this summer. You bring in Ronaldo and you bring in Sancho, two guys who you expect to go forward and get you goals. I think to score two against Leicester, one against Everton, is not why you spend all that money. And I think furthermore, you sign Rafa Varane to come play center back for you, and he's been all but average. Harry Maguire, you splashed cash on two years ago. You've seen no progression in him. And I think why I say that they're not as good as they were last year is because last year they were still trying to find the pieces of the puzzle that would make them the great team that we expect them Mm -hmm, to be. mm -hmm. And this year, it's seemingly that, okay, we went out and got every single person we wanted. If you're in the board, you're like, Ole, we got you every person that you wanted. Your team is seemingly set up to compete for a title. And here you are dropping points to Everton at home and then on the road to Leicester and then against Aston Villa. Teams that, as we've been saying, you know, aren't ones that take lightly. But when you hear Manchester United versus the, versus a Leicester or versus a Villa, you're expecting at least a point from those. So I don't think that they're, you know, as bad or worse than they were last year, but in terms of expectations, this team has su- sufficiently underperformed what I think everyone was expecting them to do. And you know, not to take Gary Neville 
you know, all of his words, but something I found so interesting when he was dissecting this loss on loss to Leicester is he's saying, you know, you look at when Liverpool goes out there, when City goes out there and plays teams that might be lesser in terms of points in the table, Liverpool's going to press you the whole game mm-hmm. and City's going to outpossess you the whole game. They, those two who have been top of the Premier League for the past three years, no, and even Chelsea too, Tuchel's always going to outpossess you. He's always going to outmark you in the midfield. But with United, you never know what what United you're going to see for their opponent, and that leaves you know a lot of United fans wondering. It probably leaves the board wondering as to how do they line up week in and week out without understanding what what result they're going to get because they don't play consistent styles of soccer. So it brings me back to my question: Is what's hap- what's going needs to happen for United to kick it up into high gear? Because at Atlanta t- tomorrow is a match which, okay, it's the Champions League. You really can kind of do whatever you want. I still think they're, despite not beating Young Boys, I think realistically they're going to get through in that group as long as they beat Atalanta once and, you know, they beat up on Young Boys. And then I think they're going to be okay to get into the knockouts. But then you focus on Liverpool, who's your one of your most extreme rivals, and you play Tottenham the following week, who's right now not a team to take lightly. Mm-hmm. And then you play Atalanta again and then City, and it just keeps getting worse and worse seemingly. What needs to happen in that dressing room or even at the top to really motivate this team to play the style of soccer that everyone's expecting? Well, I think, first of all, you know, you touched on it, but Harry Maguire, um, first game back from injury, uh, he wasn't fit. And you could see that as he gave up the first goal. Um, but also just just moving on, um, and looking at the goals that they scored that game, there were two goals that were just one person. They were just a spectacular play mm-hmm. uh, from Mason Greenwood. And then the second goal was just a Victor Lindelof ball that went 60 yards straight to Rashford. And, um, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a lot of buildup um, being played by Manchester United. And it looked like the whole game that they were just defending the entire time in the midfield just didn't look good as Tielemans and Sumare um, were, just, were just outpowering them. And so what I think needs to happen is things need to be shaken up in the locker room, um, maybe make some changes in the midfield. Um, some of the substitutions that were made uh, were, were questionable for me in that game. Uh, uh, you know, when you bring on uh, McTominay and you bring on Lingard after the performances that we've seen from uh, Greenwood and, and Matic, um, you know, those were questionable to me. And, and I think that that had to lead to some of the late goals that were scored. But... I, I think it's I think it's time that that they need to wake up, and you know being six on this table um, is not a good look for Manchester United, and I think a lot needs to be done um, in order to turn around the season for them. It's an interesting question I think because I know you know Ole Gunnar Solskjaer everybody's going to be frustrated with him, and I think rightfully so because you mentioned a good point about build up play I think because when you watch a Liverpool or a City, there's a clear strategy there that I don't think this team has, and I think part of it is. There's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, I think, because you have so many. T- this is why I have faith in you, Ned. I'm a big believer, not just in soccer, but in any sport, that when you have a good amount of talent in the room and the, the amount of forwards that are on this team is incredible, I think between Rashford, Ronaldo, Greenwood, Sancho, we can go all day about the amount of talent that is here. Once they find that right combination, I think they're going to be a problem. Now, the, the thing is, it's going to take them a while to find that combination. That's like you mentioned, Keenan. They're still figuring it out. They were figuring it out last year, and they're still figuring it out this year because when you add a Ronaldo and a Sancho or a Veron on the back line, it's not just going to magically come together. I don't think it's going to be that easy. And I don't think Ronaldo can just be inserted into the lineup and all of a sudden everything clicks. He's a very unique type of player who occupies a certain space in the field, you know, in that forward area that I think is a little different than what they've ordinarily done. 
And because of that, I think you're going to be really experiencing a lot of ups and downs with this team. And the Maguire argument's interesting. I think there are some other guys who could maybe take the captain's badge. I mean, I'm not going to say Bruno should maybe, but you have some other options there that maybe aren't Maguire. And I think what you say, Keenan, is important. A play like you saw in the last game is not what you want to see from your captain. And that's an issue that other teams don't have an issue with at the top, which I think is important. But still, once they do get that right combination... Even if it does take a little longer than we anticipated, maybe it even comes next week in this next stretch of games. I think you're going to see a very different Man United. I could be completely wrong about that, but I think once that does come, if they are able to figure it out this season, they're going to be a much better team than we're seeing uh, right now. But Alex, I think you know when we bring up the idea of, oh, it might take them some time, we've seen title races before be decided on Boxing Day. If you think back to Liverpool versus City when Liverpool lost to City by one point, that what, 0.05 centimeters that saved City on that goal line clearance, that seemingly sealed, I mean, granted there was a lot of results to go, but that matchup between Liverpool and City, realistically the points that weren't split in that match were the were the decider between Liverpool ending their title drought a year earlier and City, you know, hoisting it for the second time in two years. And I think that, you know, Granted, I, I'm confident, and I think we all are, and most of the soccer world is, that eventually Solskjaer is going to kind of figure out who needs to play where and how many minutes and what style. But I think when you spend all this money to get Ronaldo and to get Sancho with the clear clear focus of being getting Bruno some more consistent support up top, and you're still not able to find that into match week nine that we're going into here, there's certainly well, some questions to be asked, and yes, they're sitting on 14 points, and the leaders, Chelsea, are on 19. That's so- the point. I mean, we're eight games into the season here. I see your point about Boxing Day, but we are eight games into the season here. I don't think it's a we got. I can't overreact to. I feel like I have no problem overreacting though, <laughs> because I think realistically, the the output we've seen from United, it's not like they're maybe one or two pieces off. At least in my opinion, I think they're a full system off. So That's, I, fair. That's fair. I think that by the time we see Solskjaer put it together, how many points are going to separate them from the top of the table? And, you know, they only play Chelsea twice, Liverpool twice, City twice, Spurs twice, even though I don't think Spurs is contending realistically. Well, is Brighton contending either? I mean, they make goals they've scored on the season. Like, I think this is the thing that's so interesting to me is that we're at the point in the season here where there's going to be some some sneaky teams up there that we don't think are going to stay there. I think Tottenham is an interesting one, too, but I think United's going to supplant some of those teams as the year goes along here, and all of a sudden they're right back in the third, fourth place conversation that we were talking about before. I think the interesting question, I want to know your thoughts, Keenan, is third or fourth good enough for this team? I don't. Th- I think that's when you introduce who you introduce to this team and the expectation that's being put forward. And, you know, you part ways with this quality striker in Lukaku because you have faith in Greenwood's development. You have faith in Rashford. You get, you know, Cavani. You pretty much don't play Cavani because you want to play Ronaldo over him, even though Cavani was flawless for this side last year. I think that you pretty much set the expectation going into this year is that we're not going to contend for a Champions League spot again. We're going to contend for a title. And so I think that's why it's not time to press the panic button, but it's definitely something to keep our eye on going forward, especially over this next hard stretch for them. Because, yeah, they can edge out Bright, and they can probably edge out Spurs, and whoever else emerges in there, you probably take United to finish fourth, maybe third, depending on what the top three shake out to be. But realistically, do we expect City to drop that many points against, you know, moving forward? Are we expecting Liverpool or Chelsea to be dropping points at the rate United is dropping points? I don't think that's so. Fair. So I think that's why it's not time to press the panic button, but it's definitely a time to scratch your head solely because you know that the level of play in which your competition is at is not the level that you're at. And so 
you can't really afford to expect them to do your job for you in terms of them losing ground so that you can make up ground. So that's my only concern with United right now is that they're going to find themselves after this tough stretch of games in a ditch that, you know, maybe they're not able to get out of, and then it's a complete blow up, and then nobody knows what to do. So I'm not saying, you know, if you're a United supporter, if you work for United or wherever, if you're Solskjaer, you need to be scrambling to figure it out now. But it needs to start to get pieced together a little quicker because you can't put together these lackluster performances against the top half of the table because you know that if you drop points against Chelsea, Liverpool, or City, and even mm-hmm. Spurs, you drop points to them, they move further up in the table, and you at best stay where you are. And then you're chased, Then the five-point gap becomes a seven-point gap, and then the seven-point gap becomes 13, and suddenly you're on the outside looking in for the, the rest of the season as nowhere wants to be. That's a fair point. I think the interesting thing, John, that I, I'm thinking about here is if we're holding Man United to a first or worst standard, I feel like Chelsea, Liverpool, and City all hold that same standard. So we can't have four teams that we all say if they're not the top of the table, they're all of a sudden a failure because these are teams that have won the Champions League, they've won the Premier League in the past. I feel like there has to be something in between where something's got to give where there's a lot of good teams. If you can compete at that level, get into that Champions League spot, to me that's at least some sort of success. Even though Man United, I guess, John, they should be have a higher standard than that, but you can't have every team all of a sudden getting a number one spot. Yeah, that's something that I really enjoy about the Premier League. I think that every year, every team has a chance to win. And every week it's exciting to see, uh, you know, some of the teams on the bottom end of the table uh, beating the Man Cities, beating the Liverpool. And, you know, it hasn't really happened this year. But um, that's something that I enjoy about the Premier League. But, um, yeah, like you said, uh, it's going to be tough uh, for Chelsea, Liverpool, and Man City to, to you know, um, stay at the top of the table. Uh, and as you said, you know, one's got to give – and um, and I think that the thing is that the thing to look out for is just consistency um, in all these different teams, and um, and whether they could do it in a weekend uh, week out basis. Um, also, with these teams playing Champions League and Europa League too, um, as well, it'll see um, it'll be fun to see you know what kind of lineups that they put out and whether they're mm-hmm. and whether they're trying to uh, you know show less importance on the Champions League or the Europa League. Um, and focus on the Premier League, but you know it's something to look out for. And as you said, you know not all of them could be number one, even though that's the goal for each team. So um, yeah, it'll be fun to see. And I think something we need to keep our eyes on moving forward, just kind of to wrap here, is we're approaching the winter transfer window, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. exceedingly quick. And it seems as though United, who is no stranger to spending the big bucks, I don't think that they need to go out and get anyone. I personally think that the talent to compete at that high level that we're kind of encouraging them to do so and hoping that they do so is within that side. But I'm just wondering, like, for closing thoughts, guys, is there any position in which you see United need? It clearly can't be going forward because they have the most incredible depth up top. I think in the back line, if you're going to spend all that money on Varane and as well as Maguire, those need to be your guys, and you need to find a way to motivate them more. And Lindelof does a really good job sliding in when he needs to. And, you know, you've got Wambasak out wide, Shaw out wide. So I think it's seemingly in that midfield area. Can you motivate Pogba to play better? Can Fred produce at the level in which he produces for Brazil? And is McTominay or Matic, who's going to be your anchor in that midfield? Because right now they're splitting time, and neither of, neither one of them really want to see out, you know, step up and go and get it. So just to conclude, guys, I'm wondering, do they go out during the winter transfer window? I mean, granted, there's still a lot of unknowns moving forward. Do you see them being buyers in this transfer windows or selling in order to buy? Do you see them part ways with maybe Cavani if he can go? Because right now he's not getting the minutes that he probably wants. I think it's time to end the Tony Martial. 
experiment. I don't think he's got a space in this side moving forward. Where do you see United in the winter transfer window? I'll give you the last word here, John. I'll keep it quick. I think it's a pretty simple prophecy. you got to know what you have before you go out and get more. And I think I understood why Man United got more in the offseason because Chelsea did, Liverpool did, City did. I think you had to keep, compete with them. But now you're at the point, as we've talked about, you got to understand what you have before you go out and get more. There's guys like you mentioned, Keenan, clearly that are on the outside looking into this team. And I think maximizing what you currently have and getting the best roster out there and figuring out what that 11 is, I think is going to put him in the best spot possible. Yeah, I think if Manchester United are our buyers uh, during this winter transfer window, I think it'll be just doing the same thing that they did last transfer window, and they haven't figured it out yet. And so I don't think that, you know, going out and buying um, someone to help them in the midfield or in the defense, I don't think that's going to be beneficial to them. As we've seen it already, you know, they can't figure it out with the players that they have, um, even though they have some of the best players in the world. And so I think that they should just sit, uh, stick with that, uh, what they have and, you know, continue to build on, you know, some of the success that they've had. But um, I definitely think that uh, they should not be buyers during this transfer window. We're going to know a lot more next week, though. That's all I'll say. Looking forward to next week. I was going to say the exact same, Alex. You know, we see them with kind of mediocre performances against teams that can have the potential to be really good, but they always can kind of fluctuate in the levels in which they produce. But next week starts United's real test. I'd say their litmus test going against Liverpool. I'm a Liverpool fan, but I'm promising this isn't biased just because of the consistency that Klopp mm-hmm. always puts. There's two Liverpool fans back there, I'm just saying. <laughs> just because of the consistency that Klopp always puts out and what he demands of his players. It is seemingly that if United wants to contend and United wants to establish themselves as relevant, but also a team to be taken as a threat within Europe, they're going to need to be showing that on Sunday against Liverpool. But that's all the time we got today. Thanks to everyone who stopped in and joined us. John Excited to have you on the show, man. Your soccer knowledge was phenomenal. It's always good to have somebody who not only dons the red, white, and blue to record, but also is as passionate as we are about the men's national team. And then, Alex, I'm sorry we didn't get to Wolves. Maybe uh, right. they got to beat United, and then we'll, you know, we'll spend <laughs> all the time in the world on them as much as— I'll hold you to it. I'll hold you to it. As much as we want. And, you know, based on United's recent run, I don't think Wolves, yeah, Wolves is a, too far off from, you know— taking them down and then maybe soul shark can get sacked and we can credit wolves to completely <laughs> blowing up man united yeah, they know how it feels that it's all good right all right guys absolute pleasure for john tigo tios alex wolves i'm keenan troy we'll catch you guys next week enjoy the world's most beautiful game